Uh, tonight we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 7. So after you found that, let's stand together and let's just read it. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word addresses every aspect of life, that you, uh, first of all, established marriage and you desire for us to know your will concerning it. And so, Lord, you've given us your instruction. And we thank you for these instructions given by the Apostle Paul in this letter to, first letter to the Corinthians. And Lord, uh, here we see some very important uh, teaching. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to have your perspective on marriage and sexuality. And, Lord, that we might follow your principles and that we might honor you in our marriage relationships and in all of our relationships, that they would be pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, we ask again that you would be with us as we study your word. Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher and help us to rightly divide your word of truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul has already dealt with some specific issues connected to the carnality of the Corinthian believers. But here in chapter 7, he begins to deal with some specific questions that they had asked. We don't have the questions, but we have Paul's answers. We don't know exactly when these questions had been conveyed to Paul, but we know they had written to him, and ask him these questions as chapter 7, verse 1 tells us. The first question had to do with the subject of marriage. And Paul deals with several aspects of this topic. But before we get to this, we need to deal with something that always comes up about Paul. Was Paul ever married? We know that Anytime Paul addressed any subject, he always spoke with great authority. Usually that was because he himself had experienced what he was addressing. His authority often came from personal experience. But is Paul speaking here from personal experience? If not, 
some would say some would say he's only theorizing. But of course, we would say that even if he had never been married, that he is still speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But many have assumed that Paul was never married based on verse 7, which says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. It is very clear in this context that Paul is referring to himself as being single. But does that mean Paul had always been single? Javerin and McGee says, if we're going to assume that Paul was not married, we need to pay attention to the verse that follows. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. McGee goes on to say, some will say, he still says he's unmarried, granted, We know he was not married, but notice that he mentions two classes here, unmarried and widows or widowers. McGee says he could have been unmarried, in other words, someone who had never been married, or he could have been a widower. Is it possible that his wife had died? Of course it is. Of course that's possible. McGee goes on to say, it's difficult to believe that Paul had always been unmarried because of his background and because of who he was. First of all, he was a Jewish rabbi. And it was his own claim that he had failed in none of the duties which Jewish law and tradition laid down in regard to rabbis. Orthodox Jewish tradition clearly insisted on marriage for all Jewish rabbis. There was, in fact, an insistence on all Jewish men to marry, but especially Jewish rabbis. The Mishnah said that all Jewish men should get married at the age of 18. The Reb which was a commentary on Genesis 5.2 states, a Jew who has no wife is not really a man. So that tells you what they thought of marriage. But there is even more reason to believe that Paul was at one point married, and that is because he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. The Sanhedrin had a strict requirement for all its members to be married. And the reason for that is because they believed that a married man would be more merciful in his judgment of the people. So it is highly likely that Paul was married at one point in his life. What happened to his wife? Well, we don't know. The Bible does not tell us. It is possible she died, or it is also possible that she left him when he became a Christian. At any rate, I agree with Dr. McGee that in the past, 
Paul had loved some good woman who had reciprocated that love. And that is why he spoke so tenderly of the marriage relationship. Do you remember what he wrote in Ephesians 5.25? He said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. We see his understanding, his tender understanding of marriage. And of course, he wrote that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it is reflective of his tender understanding of the marriage relationship. But there's another thing that we need to keep in mind, and that is the culture of Corinth. Apparently, the Corinthians had many problems in the area of marriage. As with their many other problems, much of their marital trouble reflected their pagan and morally corrupt society in which they lived and from which they had not fully separated themselves. Their society was one, as you probably know, that tolerated fornication, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, and concubinage. And of course, that's not very different from our society today. Other than polygamy and concubinage, these are things that are widely accepted in our world today. But remember, located right in the heart of Corinth was this great temple of Aphrodite. It was like most other pagan temples. Sex was a religion there. And in this particular temple were 1,000 so-called Vestal virgins. Of course, they were nothing but 1,000 prostitutes plying their trade in the name of religion. So it was difficult to be morally pure in a society like that. But there's something else that we also need to know about the ancient world in which this was written. There were four types of marriage in that day and time. First of all, you had the marriage of slaves. Unfortunately, slaves were seen in those days as inhuman chattel, merely property similar to cattle. If a man and woman slave wanted to be married, they might be allowed to live together in what was called a contubernium. That meant a tent relationship. And this would last only as long as the master allowed it, and he could sever this relationship anytime he wanted. And remember, many of the first century Christians were slaves. Then there was a second type of marriage that was called usus, U-S-U-S. This was a type of common law marriage that recognized a couple to be husband and wife after they had lived together for one year. And we still know of that kind of marriage relationship today. Thirdly, there was the type of marriage in which the father would 
sell his daughter to a prospective husband. This was kind of a business deal that was fairly common in that society. And this was especially prominent among the poor. But then there was a type of marriage that was much more elevated in quality. The patrician class, the nobility, were married in a service called the Conferiatio. This, in this ceremony upon which our modern weddings are based today. And it's interesting, the original ceremony involved participation by both families in the arrangements for the wedding. It included a matron that was selected to accompany the bride and a man to accompany the groom. There was an exchanging of vows. There was the wearing of a veil by the bride. There was the giving of a ring placed on the third finger of the left hand. There was a bridal bouquet. There was a wedding cake. And so if you're wondering, these kinds of traditions go back at least to the first century. But what about divorce in a society like that? John MacArthur says, in the Roman Empire of Paul's day, divorce was common, even among those married under the Conferiatio. And he says, it was not uncommon for men and women to have been married 20 times or more. In addition to that, an active feminist movement had also developed. Uh, some wives were competing with their husbands in business and even in feats of physical strength. Imagine that. MacArthur says many were not interested in being housewives and mothers. And by the end of the first century, childless marriages were common. And we thought those kind of things only happen in our day and time. Now, this brings us down to the specific problems that Paul is going to address. The early church had members that had lived together and were still living together under all four marriage arrangements. It also had those who had been through multiple marriages and divorces. And we're going to get to the divorce issue next time. But this was a real problem in this society. Not only that, but some believers had gotten the notion that being single and celibate was more spiritual than being married. Some were even disparaging marriage altogether. Perhaps there was someone in that church that had been teaching that Sex is unspiritual and should be altogether forsaken, even in marriage. In addition, the problem that Paul was dealing with was a problem that was common in ancient Greek philosophy. In Greek thought, there was a 
strong tendency to despise the body and anything related to the human body. So this led to a position where men, for example, could say, the body is utterly unimportant, therefore we can do what we want with it, and it makes no difference if we allow its appetites to have their fullest play. And so you had the playboys of the early century, first century. These were those who held the, excuse me, these were those who held the viewpoint of the Epicureans. The Epicureans. Then there was the opposite view. The Stoic philosophers said something like, the body is inherently evil. Therefore, we must bring it under subjection. We must completely deny all the instincts and desires which are natural to the body. These were those who advocated total abstinence even in marriage. So you see the philosophers uh, of that day also contributing to what Paul is dealing with here. So Paul's challenge was to counter both of these misconceptions. And he would teach that in relation to marriage and to sex, both of these views are wrong. Now, one last thing before we move into this text. A lot of people have accused Paul of being a male chauvinist. And yet, when we consider his culture, we would probably have to say that the exact opposite is true. Paul lifted women from the place of slavery in the pagan world and made her an equal companion with her husband. That was a radical concept in that day and time. Ephesians 5 was something very, very radical in the first century. Well, in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7, that we read earlier, Paul answers the questions of singleness, celibacy, and marriage. We read it, but let's go through each of these issues. The first thing that Paul declares is that celibacy is good. Celibacy is good. Look with me at verse 1 again. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is, a good, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, that phrase, not to touch a woman, was a common euphemism for sexual intercourse. But here, in this context, Paul is using this concept to speak of the fact that it is a good thing for a person to remain single and not to get married. However, let me hasten to say, he is going to make it clear that singleness is not the only acceptable status, nor is he going to say that marriage is in any way inferior or wrong. But he's going to give both sides here. What he's emphasizing here is that singleness can be a good thing as long as the person remains celibate. And he begins with the premise that celibacy is good for those who are unmarried. 
He's not arguing against marriage here. In fact, anyone who would make the argument that the Bible teaches that it's best for everyone to remain single really should just go back and read Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. It was God himself who established marriage. And we know that all people need companionship. So God ordained marriage to be the most fulfilling of all human relationships. But what we have to understand here is that the Jews looked at the marriage relationship as the ideal, but they believed that being single was wrong. They believed that being single was wrong. And it is possible and even highly probable that some of the Jewish Christians in Corinth were pressuring any singles in their midst to get married. They were putting a lot of pressure on the singles in the congregation. On the other hand, many of the Gentiles, some of whom had had bad experiences with marriage, were choosing to remain single. And so you had a mix. One author wrote, as the Jews had done with marriage, those Gentiles reacting to the sexual sin of their past came to look on celibacy not only as the ideal state, but the only truly godly state. So what Paul is doing here is he is acknowledging that singleness is good, that it is honorable before God, that it is even excellent. And yet, at the same time, he does not support the notion that it is a more spiritual state than marriage or that it is more acceptable to God. Secondly, he says, celibacy can lead to temptation. Temptation. Look at verse 2. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. That phrase, but for immoralities, does not imply that every Corinthian church member was immoral, although no doubt some of them were. What Paul is speaking of here is the danger of fornication for those who are single. And because sexual desire is unfulfilled and can be very strong, there is great temptation for sexual immorality for those who are not married, especially in societies such as ancient Rome or our own, where sexual license is freely practiced and even glorified. So Paul's answer here is extremely practical. In effect, he's saying, remember where you're living. Remember that you live in Corinth where you cannot even walk along the street without temptation rearing its head at you. He's also saying, remember your own physical constitution and the healthy instincts which nature has given you. Therefore, you would be much better off to get married 
than to fall into sin. Now, someone might say, wow, that's a pretty low view of marriage. MacArthur responds by saying, marriage cannot be reduced simply to being God's escape valve for the sex drive. Paul does not suggest that Christians go out and find another Christian to marry only to keep from falling into moral sin. That's not what he's saying. He goes on to say, Paul had a much higher view of marriage than that. Just read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. His purpose here is to stress the reality of sexual temptations of singleness and to acknowledge that they have a legitimate outlet in marriage. That's what he's doing. Think about it this way. The Scripture gives five purposes for marriage. Five purposes for marriage. Number one, procreation. That's Genesis 1.28. Secondly, pleasure. Proverbs 5.18 and 19. Third, partnership. Genesis 2.18. Uh, Fourth, he gives it as a picture of the church. That's Ephesians 5, 23 to 32. And finally, for purity. And that's this passage, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Five purposes for marriage. So celibacy is good for those who are unmarried. However, it can lead to temptation. So You need to make sure you don't fall into sin. But thirdly, celibacy is wrong for married persons. Celibacy is wrong for married persons. Look at verses 3 through 5. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this should have been obvious to them, but apparently it wasn't. Because of their erroneous belief in the spiritual superiority of total sexual abstinence, some members in that church practiced it even within marriage. So Paul says that sexual deprival is wrong in marriage, regardless of whether or not your spouse is a Christian. And notice that there is only one biblical exception to this. The only exception is both mutual and temporary. By agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. As in the case of fasting, if both parties agree to abstain from sexual activity for a brief period of time to allow for one or both of them to spend time in intensive prayer, they may do so. But this is the only exception 
mentioned in Scripture. MacArthur sums it up by saying, sexual expression within marriage is not an option or an extra. It is certainly not, as it has sometimes been considered, a necessary evil in which spiritual Christians engage only to procreate children. It is far more than a physical act. God created it to be the expression and experience of love on the deepest human level and to be a beautiful and powerful bond between husband and wife. The truth of the matter is that unless it is by mutual consent for a specific prayer need and for a brief period of time, sexual abstinence can be a tool of Satan. It is never to be used as a pretense for spiritual superiority or as a means of intimidating or manipulating one's spouse. And by the way, let me just give you a few pastoral comments here before we move on. This principle is given in very general terms. Men generally have a stronger sex drive than women, so balance is needed here. Men should not use this verse as a hammer to make demands from their wife. And women should not suddenly become prayer warriors because of this verse. Now, I said that in a humorous way. But there's some truth there, right? Wives need to understand the inherent danger in not meeting the sexual needs of their husbands. And there always has to be sensitivity in marriage, in that marriage relationship. Well, Paul rounds out this passage by saying, essentially, celibacy is a gift given to some It's a gift given to some. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. By this I say, by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. The word concession in verse 6 is not the best translation. The Greek word literally means to think the same thing as someone, to have a joint opinion, a common mind or understanding. In other words, this is talking about being in agreement. I believe that what Paul is saying here is that he is aware of the goodness of being single and celibate, yet he's also aware of the privileges and responsibilities of marriage. In other words, his comments were not meant as a command for every believer to become married. Yes, marriage was instituted by God and is the norm for men-women relationships. Marriage is a great blessing to mankind, but it is not required for believers or for anyone else. And his point is, 
If you are single, that is good. And if you're married or planning to get married, that is also good. Spirituality is not determined by marital status. And we as a congregation should not be pressuring singles to go out and get married. Now, it is true that in one sense, Paul wished that all believers could be single. As he says, even as I myself am. He said that in light of the great freedom and independence that he had as a single man to go out and evangelize and plant churches all over the world. So in that sense, that was an advantage that Paul had. But he did not expect all believers to remain single. And for those who were already married, it was wrong for them to desire to be single again. It was wrong for them to be celibate in their marriage. So he's taking care of all these problems that they're dealing with. In verse 7, Paul is saying that he recognizes that all, not all men and women are the same. Some seem to have the gift of celibacy and others do not. Some seem to have more self-control sexually than others. Another way to say this is to say that celibacy is a gift from God, but it's not given to all. And just as it is wrong for us to misuse a gift that we do have, so it is wrong for us to try to use a gift we do not have. And for a person who does not have the gift of celibacy, trying to practice it brings moral and spiritual frustration. But for those who have it as God's gift, singleness, like all of his gifts, is a great blessing. There are things that you can do as a single person that you could not do as a married person. There are freedoms that come from being single that afford a Christian many opportunities that married people do not have because married people have to focus on taking care of their families. But you'd better make sure you can handle it morally. You'd better make sure you don't fall into sexual temptations. And these are the principles that we are to live by. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand these principles, how they apply to our lives. And Lord, that we might live by them, that we might abide according to your word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us bless our marriages, uh, bless those who are single. Lord, we we pray that uh, you would uh, just help us to understand that uh, uh, spirituality is not dependent on marital status. But in whatever state we are in, help us to live for you and to live godly lives, to resist temptations, and to uh, live holy um, as you would want us to. So, Lord, we pray now that you would help us to implement these principles in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.